How does source code written in a programming language turn into something that a computer can understand? In this episode, we're going to explain compilers and interpreters. Welcome to Copec Explained Software the podcast where we make computing intelligible. Dave, most programming languages are written for humans, not computers, right? That's right. Most human beings want to write in what are called higher level languages, and they're called higher level because they're further away from the microprocessor's machine language. But what is machine language? And what's the slightly higher level language called assembly language that probably a lot of you have heard of before? Well, machine code or machine language is the literal binary encoded instructions that a particular instruction set architecture understands. What's an instruction set architecture? It's a family of microprocessors that all speak the same machine language. For example, the servers, desktops, laptops that you might be familiar with generally have AMD or Intel microprocessors that use x86 machine language. Whereas your portable devices like your cell phone, your tablets, your um, game system like your Nintendo Switch might run ARM microprocessors that use ARM machine language. These are the lowest level languages that the microprocessors understand, and at their base, they're encoded in binary, which is not very readable by human beings. However, we have something to help with that. It's called assembly language. It's slightly higher level than machine language, but it really maps to it very, very closely. It uses English-like words and macros to make machine code more readable. And there's a program called an assembler that converts assembly language into machine code. So x86 assembly is gonna be different from ARM assembly, just like x86 machine code is gonna be different from ARM machine code. But as programmers, to go back to your question, we don't generally wanna write in assembly language or machine code because the only thing you can write in those is the very simple basic instructions that the microprocessor understands. And as human beings, we want to work at a higher level. We want to work with abstractions that let us think more like humans and less like machines. But then you might ask, don't some people write in assembly language? Why does it even exist if we want to write in those higher level languages typically. Well, there are a few reasons you might want to work in assembly language. One reason is you might get some faster performance for some hand-tuned code in assembly language. There also are some situations where to communicate with devices that need very specific machine instructions, you have to actually use assembly language. But in general, assembly language is harder to read than higher level languages. It's more time consuming to write. And like I mentioned before, it's not portable between different microprocessor architectures. So if you're writing an assembly language for x86, you have to go rewrite all your code if you want to then port it to ARM microprocessors. This is where compilers and interpreters can come in. They're going to be translators. Is that right? Right. So we want to work in these higher level languages that have more abstractions. So something like a C or a Java or a Python that are easier for us to write in than assembly language. And what a compiler or an interpreter does is takes that high-level language that we wrote in and translates it into instructions that the microprocessor can understand, basically translates it into machine language. The difference is that a compiler translates all of the source code ahead of time, 
while an interpreter does it instruction by instruction. So as it comes to each next thing that it needs to do, it on the fly tells the microprocessor, this is the next thing you need to do. Whereas a compiler goes and says, well, let me figure out everything you're gonna need to do and turn it all into machine code before the program even runs. How is a programming language's syntax defined? Syntax is what is legal in a programming language? What does a programming language look like? If you think about human languages, like where do we put an adjective relative to a noun? Where do we put a verb relative to a noun and an adjective? There has to be some rules. And a context-free grammar is what we use to describe the syntax of a programming language. And also human languages can be defined using context-free grammars as well. So typically a programming language will have a formalized context-free grammar that defines what is the legal syntax of the language. And a compiler or interpreter will use these definitions, this context-free grammar, to decide whether or not some source code that somebody has written is legal, and then later on to take that syntax and turn it into meaning, which is semantics, and we'll get more into that in a couple minutes. But in general, every programming language that's formalized is gonna have a context-free grammar that defines what is the legal syntax of that programming language. What are the different components of a compiler? There are many different internal components of a typical compiler, and they're typically broken down into two large sections, the front end and the back end. Let's start with the front end. The first part is the lexer or tokenizer. That context-free grammar is gonna define what is the legal syntax of the programming language. Once we know what the legal syntax is, we can try to read through the source code file, which is just a text file, and see if each of the individual pieces, literally the words and symbols, are legal within that programming language. And if they are, we can take them all and turn them into what's called a stream of tokens. Let me give you an example. Let's say we had the statement in a basic-like programming language that said, if A is less than B, then go to 20. Literally, the letters IF, which define the word IF, would be a legal keyword in that programming language. And we would say, once we see IF, we found the first token. We found the token IF. Okay, then we look at A. A might be the name for a variable, so that would probably be a legal token. And so we'd say, there's our second token, A, less than. That is a legal symbol in that programming language. So there's your next token. It might start to sound like most of your tokens are just the things that are between your spaces. And that is pretty much what it is. As long as there are legal things surrounded by spaces, they pretty much become tokens. It's a little bit more complicated than that. But what you end up with after you go through the tokenizer is a stream, basically a list of all of the tokens that are within the program. Then once we have those tokens and we know they're all legal tokens, they all were legal as defined by the context-free grammar and the tokenizer made sure that they were, we take those tokens and we actually have to turn them into some meaning. All they are right now is this collection of symbols, but we want those symbols when they're put together to actually have meaning. So that's what the parser is responsible for doing. And this is oftentimes the core of the compiler is really the parser. And there's many different ways to write parsers, which are beyond the scope of our episode. But basically what the parser does is it takes multiple tokens that are next to each other and says, oh, because they're next to each other, they do have some meaning. For example, let's take the phrase, A is less than B, right? On its own, A doesn't really mean much. It might just refer to some value that a variable was set to. And B might be the same thing. But with the less than sign between A and B, now we have a phrase, you might say. A is less than B. That might be what we call a Boolean expression. And the parser seeing A, the less than sign, and B 
understands that when we see all of those things together, we have formed a Boolean expression. And then that Boolean expression might be a part of that if statement that we were talking about. So you can see how these start to kind of build up. We take the individual small tokens, and now we formed a Boolean expression. We combine that with some more tokens, and now we form part of an if statement. And what you actually end up building up is a large tree where the leaves, the, the bottom parts of the tree, and we have to, our trees are upside down usually in computer science, that's why I said bottom, are really those individual tokens, and the top might actually be a much more sophisticated phrase, like an if statement, or even a larger uh, whole function of the program, or something like that. And we have this tree that we can go to with the most abstract meanings at the top, and the most concrete fundamentals at the bottom in the leaves. And all of that together we call the abstract syntax tree, sometimes abbreviated to AST. So once we've gone through the lexer and the parser, we have an AST that gives our program some kind of meaning. We're not doing anything yet with that meaning, but we actually understand what the different parts of the program are. We've put them into a structure, which is this AST, and we can now derive some meaning from them. But now we actually have to do something to take that AST and turn it into something the computer can understand, really that the microprocessor can understand. Okay, so we have something with meaning. We have an AST. What do we do next? So the front end is usually considered the tokenizer and the parser. Once we've gotten through that, we've basically finished the front end. We have the AST. Then we go to what's sometimes called the middle of the compiler. And this can vary quite a bit from compiler to compiler. But a lot of compilers today will have what's called an intermediate code generator. They'll take the AST turn it into some code that's not ultimately machine code, but instead an intermediary form that is actually more portable than machine code. That intermediate code might actually go through an optimizer that goes through and tries to simplify some of the expressions or remove some of the expressions or rearrange some of the expressions and statements to make the program ultimately run faster and be more efficient machine code. Then, once we have that optimized intermediate code, we go into what's usually called the back end of the compiler, which is what actually takes that code and turns it into machine code. And so that's actually something that the microprocessor itself can understand. Now, the back end might also include some optimization. So at several points in this process, there might be optimizations that are being made. And the more sophisticated the compiler, the more rounds of optimizations that are typically done. Now, not all compilers will have that middle component that we talked about. More simple compilers will go right from the AST to the back end that generates machine code. So we really could have a compiler with as simple as three components, the lexer tokenizer, the parser, and the machine code generator. Why is intermediate code useful? Yeah, like I said, a lot of advanced compilers will have this middle section that generates intermediate code and might even do optimizations on the intermediate code before going to the machine code generator. One nice thing about intermediate code is that it can actually be quite platform independent. Let me give you an example. Java bytecode is a type of intermediate code. And what we can do is we can take a Java program, compile it into this intermediate code representation, which is the Java bytecode, and then any machine that has a Java virtual machine can run that bytecode. So essentially the intermediate code is making our compiled form platform independent, and then the Java virtual machine is what will take that 
intermediate Java bytecode and actually convert it into machine code. So intermediate code can be like a compiled form of the program that is a step above individual microprocessor architectures and can be quite portable. I'll give you another place that this is used. Actually, Apple on the App Store takes intermediate code representations of programs and stores them when you upload your binaries to the App Store so that if new microprocessors come out that have new, let's say, extensions, the intermediate code can be recompiled into the latest form of the machine code that takes advantage of those new microprocessor extensions, which can provide some performance boosts. So intermediate code can be a lot more portable than a simple compiler that just goes right to machine code. It might also sometimes be easier to do certain kinds of optimizations on a particular intermediate code than it is to do them in the machine code. So we might be able to then reuse those optimizations across many different microprocessor architectures than have to hand code them in the machine code generator for every different kind of microprocessor architecture. So there are many opportunities for optimization within a compiler. Typically, most sophisticated compilers will make these optimizations tunable. You as the programmer can configure what kind of optimizations you're interested in. You might ask, why would you ever not want some optimizations? Well, if you're debugging, you might actually want the machine code to look as close as possible to your original program, including maybe even some symbols within it, so that if you have to step through your program as it's running and see where the problems are, you want to actually be in something that can map to the original source code. The optimizations made by the compiler might get so sophisticated that the machine code starts to look nothing like your original program, and then it's very hard if you want to step through it, let's say using breakpoints with a debugger, you won't be able to see like where you were in the original program. So for debugging purposes, we might sometimes want to uh, turn off some optimizations. The other thing is sometimes optimizations can be so aggressive that they might actually make some of our code unsafe. And we might want to turn off some of that safety because we need maximum performance, but other times we actually might want that safety. So that's another reason that optimizers are typically tunable. How do compilers and interpreters compare to each other? Compilers are typically more sophisticated than interpreters. We mentioned all the way at the beginning, a compiler takes original source code and turns it into machine code ahead of time whereas an interpreter kind of looks at each little piece of the program one step at a time and on the fly is translating it into instructions for the microprocessor. So actually an interpreter can stop after the front end and start doing interpretation. So we have still the lexer or the tokenizer, that stream of tokens gets generated. We still have the parser that generates the AST. And once we have the AST, a simple interpreter can actually just walk through the AST, look at what that meaning is supposed to ha make happen, and actually just on the fly say, hey, microprocessor, I think you're supposed to do this. I think you're supposed to do that. So interpreters typically can be a lot simpler than compilers. At the same time though, they might actually have more flexibility. Because we haven't made the machine code concrete before the program runs, we can on the fly do more dynamic and flexible things. And so interpreters can support more dynamic programming languages than compilers typically can. So interpreters can be more flexible, but they also typically will be simpler and also have much worse performance on average than your average compiler because they're on the fly figuring out what to do instead of ahead of time, we're doing all these optimizations and having all of our code already in machine code instead of on the fly having to translate it into machine instructions. 
What's a just-in-time compiler? Yeah, there's another alternative. There's actually an in-between, something that's somewhere between an interpreter and a compiler. A traditional ahead-of-time compiler takes all of the source code and converts it into machine code before the program even runs. A just-in-time compiler might actually start doing interpretation when the program first runs. And as the program is running, it'll take pieces of the program, maybe a whole function, maybe a whole module of the program, and convert them into machine code. So it's actually compiling on the fly or just in time, just as needed, right? Um, You might say, wow, that sounds like the worst of both worlds because we're still going to have some of the performance costs of an interpreter and we're still also going to have all the complexity of a compiler. And that's true. Just-in-time compilers typically are not quite as performant as ahead-of-time compilers, and they typically are just as complex as ahead-of-time compilers. But believe it or not, there are actually some advantages. One of the advantages is we can have our code be transmitted from machine to machine in some intermediate form, so it's portable, um, just like they do with Java bytecode in the Java Virtual Machine, for example. Another advantage of just-in-time compilers is they can actually do some very unique optimizations, some optimizations that ahead-of-time compilers can't do. Here's what they are. Because the code is being compiled on the fly as the program is running, the just-in-time compiler can actually look at what parts of the program are the most performance-intensive, what parts of the program are being used the most, and it might be able to do some unique optimizations because it knows that certain parts of the program are run certain ways. For example, if it observes that there's a certain function that's never used, it might need to never actually compile it, which might actually save on uh, some code size situations or memory situations. It might also observe, well, there's only certain kinds of types that are going through certain functions, but the function was built to be generic enough to support many different kinds of types. There might be some unique optimizations it can do through that observation that ahead of time compiler could never have seen because it never sees how the code is actually used. It just has to guess how the code is actually gonna be used. So just-in-time compilers can do some unique optimizations. There can be some limited areas where they're actually gonna outperform ahead of time compilers. In general though, on average, just-in-time compilers don't perform as well as ahead-of-time compilers for the same programming languages. But again, they have some of these advantages, kind of best of both worlds, um, that come into play. So they can be very useful for more portable languages and also for some very specific performance scenarios. Speed-wise, how do interpreters compare to compilers? Yeah, I mentioned this earlier, and you know there can really be quite a vast difference. You think about the most classic compiled language of all time is probably C, and we've talked about C on a prior episode that I'll link to in the show notes, right? And it's really used as a standard bearer for how fast are other programming languages compared to it. Some of the most popular interpreted programming languages today are Python and Ruby. Python and Ruby, when running actually pure code, can be as much as 50 to 80 times slower than C. And what do I mean by pure code? I mean that actually a lot of Python libraries, for example, are actually written in C. And so for performance reasons, you're writing your high-level code in Python, but that Python is actually calling a library that was written in C that is way, way faster than it would be if it was written in Python. So a lot of times when you're writing programs in Python, you're actually running a lot of C code. But that said, if you're writing pure Python or pure Ruby that's not using libraries that are written in C, it can be 50 to 80 times slower in a lot of benchmarks than C is. So there can be a vast difference between 
compiled languages and interpreted languages on average. That said, of course, there can be a poorly written compiler that performs worse than a very well-written interpreter. On average, interpreters are a lot slower, and on average, just-in-time compilers are somewhere in between interpreters and ahead-of-time compilers. But again, there could be unique situations where a just-in-time compiler actually outperforms an ahead-of-time compiler, and a lot of this is also going to differ due to some of the natural characteristics of the programming languages in question. So there could be a programming language that it's just impossible to write a really high-performance compiler for, and so you might end up thinking, well, it makes sense to just have this be an interpreted language anyway. So it really can differ quite a bit from language to language, but if we're going to talk in really broad strokes, yes, on average, interpreted languages are significantly slower than compiled languages. There might be a time where we want to convert one high-level programming language to another. What would we use for that? Yeah, there is something else. It's called a transpiler. What a transpiler does is it takes one high-level programming language and converts it into another. And you might wonder, why would you want to do that? There's actually a lot of good reasons you might want to do that. One reason is that that saves you from having to write the backend and the optimizers. Let me give you an example. Maybe you have a programming language like Chicken Scheme or Vela or OpenDillon. All of them have transpilers that transpile to C. They're basically using C as their intermediate language. So they, they only have to write the front end. They only have to write the tokenizer and the parser, and then they generate intermediate code that really is C. Then that C code can go into a traditional C compiler. And those C compilers might have 30, 40 years of engineering work that's gone into them. And then they can actually compile that C code to machine code with all of those great optimizations that are built into those compilers. So it actually makes your job as a programming language author much easier if you're transpiling to C because you don't have to write that huge backend and write all those optimizers quite as much as you would if you were going to write the whole shebang yourself. It also might make your programming language more portable because by transpiling to C, now any microprocessor architecture that has a C compiler can actually have your program compiled for it. So you're going to gain some portability as well. There's other reasons you might want to have a transpiler. A lot of programming languages like Dart, Clojure, CoffeeScript, even C and C++ have transpilers that transpile to JavaScript. Why JavaScript? Well, JavaScript is the language of the web. It's the only programming language that every web browser has an interpreter for built in. And so if you want to make your programming language able to run within a web browser, you need a transpiler that takes it and converts it into JavaScript. So there are many reasons that transpilers can be really, really helpful. They also simplify the creation of a compiler for a programming language author. Dave, why don't we summarize now? Absolutely. So a microprocessor understands machine code, and a compiler or an interpreter is a way of taking source code written in a high-level programming language and turning it into machine code. A compiler typically does all of that work ahead of time, whereas an interpreter goes piece by piece of the program and does it on the fly. A compiler is going to have many different phases. The front end is composed of the tokenizer, which gets a stream of legal tokens from the source code, and the parser, which converts that into something with meaning, which we call the AST, which has all of the meaningful parts of the program developed into a tree structure. From there, we might go into an intermediate code generator that'll develop portable intermediate code, which could have some optimizations applied to it. That we might call the middle of the compiler, and then the back end of the compiler takes that and turns that into machine code and might do further optimizations. 
an interpreter is typically much simpler. It's just gonna have the front end and then it might actually walk through the AST or it might do something a little more sophisticated than that, but it's not gonna have all of the different parts that a compiler does. Typically interpreters are gonna be much slower than compilers. There is an in-between, there's what's called a just-in-time compiler that will take parts of the program and compile it on the fly as the program is running while starting out as an interpreter. So there are many different pathways for a program to go from source code to machine code. And there are many different trade-offs between these different pathways. If you're a programmer and you're interested in learning more about this, I'm gonna recommend a book to you in the show notes called Crafting Interpreters, which gives you a step-by-step guide to writing your own interpreter without doing it with a lot of the academic speak that you might find in some of the textbooks in this area. There are some classic textbooks in this area. The most famous one is called The Dragon Book. But for most people, most programmers even, I think crafting interpreters is a lot easier to digest. At the time that we're recording this episode, there's a war and humanitarian crisis going on in Ukraine. In the show notes, we're linking to some humanitarian organizations that you can donate to to help with the situation. Thanks for listening to us this week. Rebecca, how can people get in touch with us on Twitter? We're at Kopec Explains, K-O-P-E-C-E-X-P-L-A-I-N-S. Don't forget to like us or subscribe to us on your podcast player of choice, and we'll see you in two weeks. Bye.